Wow, what a powerful story of the Bible. And to get us ready to really look at it very soberly, I want to give you an analogy. I've done a lot of weddings. They are such a joy to do. And almost every wedding that I've ever officiated has begun on time. Except with one exception, um, it's almost always, whenever it doesn't begin on time, one exception. That was a father who went and got a keg of beer for the reception, and the car in front of him stopped, and the keg of beer rolled forward right through his front windshield. That was exciting. Except for that one, the only time a wedding ever has begun late, in my experience, it's when the bride takes extra time to get herself ready. How can you be upset at that? I want to use that analogy to offer you a thought. Do you understand we're the bride of Christ, the church? Do you know that right now is our time to be made ready? For the day that we will belong and be covenantally joined to Christ forever for eternity. And there will be a great wedding feast of the Lamb. Right now, all of those difficult times that you're going through, all those times of suffering, they are chiseling you. They are sanding your rough edges. They are more, making you more and more like Christ to be presentable to him. In fact, Solomon said in Kings that there was, the sound, there was not the sound of hammer or chisel in the temple precincts. It was done at the quarry. We're in the quarry of the world. One day, we're going to be set as stones into the great temple of heaven. Analogy. And there will never be another moment of suffering. There will never be another blow of the hammer. You won't need it. But right now, you and I need it. And this message is designed, it's aimed because the text is. To be a hammer and chisel in our lives. And I would just encourage you, even now, before we even actually begin it, that you would treat it seriously and respond accordingly. We return to our series called To the End of the Earth, where Luke, the author of Acts, he's like an embedded reporter. And he's following the action of the explosion of this church. It's growing. It's exciting. And we're in the middle of the action. And in chapter 1, you remember, he had said to his disciples, and he says to us, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Filled and empowered with the Spirit of God. These early Christians share the good news. That's always in Acts. Fifteen times the main result of being filled with the Spirit of God. You're given the power to testify of Jesus. And you're, you're given the ability to tell people about how God has made a way to be saved through Jesus Christ. And that is good news. But let's take a moment to peek behind the curtain of why this is such good news. What's really happening? You know, all creation, you go all the way back to Genesis 1, all of creation was announced by God as good until he created 
mankind. And then it was pronounced as very good. So what you can extrapolate and take out of that is that every square inch of creation pleased God. He loved it. But then Genesis 3 takes place. And Lucifer, an archangel, the greatest, most glorious, most beautiful of all of the angels, believed to be the worship director in heaven. His job was to direct all of creation to worship our great God. But he slipped into the stream of that worship. He got a taste of it. And he said, you know what? I want to be worshipped. I want to possess heaven and earth. And he rebelled against God. And he stirred rebellion among the third of the angels. And they all broke out in war against God. But they were soundly defeated and cast to the face of the earth. They are here, friends working to affect us and infect in us as much as they can with rebellion called sin. And that defiance, that sin lives in your heart, friends. It lives in my heart. And like Lucifer, we want our own way. And it makes peace with God impossible. So the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22 is all about the story of God's rescue plan. Because he created all to be in peace with him, but everyone fell into this rebellion called sin. So he sent his son, Jesus, to rescue us and redeem us. And right now and then fully and finally, he will restore all things to peace and glory, and beauty. That rescue began when Jesus, the Son of God, came. We just celebrated it in the form of humanity as a baby. And he lived perfectly and obediently to his heavenly Father. Something none of us have been able to do. And he was crucified for our sin, not his own. He was sinless. And he was raised to life. And he now offers forgiveness and peace to any who will come to him and submit in faith. Yet Lucifer, whom we know more commonly as Satan, listen, seethes with hatred and is unleashing all of his effort to blind the minds of unbelievers so they will not turn to Jesus, keeping them in darkness. And he is working to destroy your faith and my faith and destroy the church. Why? Because we, the church, are the means, the vehicle to carry the gospel, the good news to the world. Yet Jesus gave us a promise. Jesus, the king of his kingdom, promised, I will build my church and the gates, the very powers of hell shall not prevail against it. So Christian, friends, you need to know something and you need to be bolstered with confidence. The promise of Jesus means that the church is unconquerable. It is invincible. It will not be overcome. Why? Not because we're such a great bunch of churches. It's because our king has decreed that he will protect us. And the devil is about to unleash 
his attempt to destroy the church, but God is going to intervene. Here we go, Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now we're going to see a problem and then we're going to see the solution. And the problem, friends, quite simply, is hypocrisy. Let's look at the very first verse, the very first word of verse 1. You see that in your Bibles? Can you look at it with me? It's the word but. That word flips the coin from heads to tails. It opens the door from being closed. It's the hinges of a door. It's, we use it like this. It's a chilly day outside today, but it's warm in here. You see, it's a contrast word. And so Luke is contrasting Ananias with somebody else he just introduced at the end of chapter 4. His name is Joseph. He's going to get a name change to Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. He is a Levitical priest. He's a Levite. And pretty soon you're going to see in Acts, he's going to be one of the most powerful preachers the world has ever known. He's going to be an effective witness of Jesus. But here is his origin story. Here's where it all began in his introduction to the church. He sells a field. But friends, listen, he's a Levite. It was literally illegal for a Levite to sell or to actually own land in Israel. So how did he sell something he was forbidden to own? Well, this is why Luke, I think, tells us he's from Cyprus. So the property undoubtedly is in Cyprus. He sells it, and he brings the money, and he lays it at the feet of the apostles. The exact same thing, basically, that you're doing when you put money into the offering box or when you give online. You're giving it to the elders of the church who oversee the deacons and the stewards of it. In Acts 6, that's what the church is going to begin doing. Here, you bring it to the apostles, and the apostles oversee it, but the church is going to get too big, so they begin bringing in deacons. And that money goes to the needy, it goes to the missionaries, it goes to the ministry of the gospel, but, verse 1, a husband and a wife and Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a property. And they bring part of the proceed to the apostles. Except, listen, they gave the impression that they brought it all. See, the problem's hypocrisy. That was the problem. They didn't have to bring any of it. You know that, right? I mean, listen, they could have sold the property and used the money. They could have sold the property and brought part of the money. It was irrelevant. The issue is not what they brought. The issue is the deception. You see, God wants us to give as he has decided in his heart, as each person has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly, not because you have to. Listen, don't ever let a pastor manipulate you to give. Don't let a pastor 
make you feel guilty if you're not giving. Let the Spirit of God speak to you. You're to give as a cheerful giver. The problem was for Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted the recognition of Barnabas, but they didn't want to make the sacrifice. Now let's get super modern. Let's get utterly real. Maybe they're thinking of the bills that they're coming into their account. Maybe they think of the things that are needed for their home. Maybe they're thinking of the incredibly high Roman taxes that are draining their reserves. You think you're paying a lot of taxes now? It is nothing compared to the Roman taxation of first century Israel. They could hardly live. So they pretended that they brought it all. And they chose together to live a lie. But they've got a problem. Peter's filled with the Spirit. You see, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, friends, you now are given the supernatural abilities that you did not have in your own gifts and in your own talents. And one of the ones that Peter had was the gift of discernment. He could see behind the curtain. And when Ananias brings the gift... Peter diagnoses the problem. Verse 3, Satan filled your heart. Now I want you to look at me for a second. Friends, you cannot and I cannot ever blame sin on the devil. You cannot make a terrible mistake called sin and then tell somebody the devil made you do it. That is theologically unsustainable. Look at verse 4. You contrived this deed in your heart. This is your choice. You see what they did? Peter's saying, you've got an unholy business partner, Ananias. His name is the devil. Friends, there is a reality check that when we sin... We need to acknowledge that we were being tempted to sin, but the problem is the desire that was already in our hearts because the temptation doesn't work if the desire is not already there. If you don't have a love of money, then the 400 million Powerball ticket's not going to hold very much influence for you. Christian, demonic forces are wrestling with us. You know, I'm going to tell you something, and I want to actually bring you some odd comfort with this, although it's not going to really be that comforting. The devil's never met you. The devil's never met me. He's not omnipresent. He cannot be in all places at one time. The devil is located in a physical point of reality. Only God is omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-being. But he's got a third of the angels that he led into rebellion. And they have fallen and been cast to this earth. And he is an extremely organized demon. There are demonic forces that are wrestling with us and they are looking for openings in your life. They are spotting for your weaknesses and friends and Christians. I want to ask you, are you well acquainted with your weaknesses? Do you know them? Because they are potential gateways of the enemy. And for many of us, one of those weaknesses might be a love for money. 
Maybe it is fear, which is a heart poised to look for a God substitute that will offer you a promise of security. That's what fear does. If you don't trust God, you're going to move to some other God. Pretending to give you that security. Perhaps it's as simple as vanity, your looks driving you to just another diet, another gym membership, a self-consumption with your body. Maybe it is pleasure, which takes nearly unlimited forms, and it's fed by unlimited resources in this world. Maybe it's escape, which your music apps and your books and your video games are ready to provide for you. For young parents, it is often their children who become, and this is really hard to admit, your idol, your source of joy, your ever-present concern. Maybe it's fame, power, security, shame, unrelenting guilt, unforgiveness, self-love. Listen, the possibilities are endless. Why? Because John Calvin pointed it out right. He said, our hearts are factories for idols. And the world drives truckloads of resources to fabricate these idols, and we churn them out every single day. And our spiritual enemies are spotting them and presenting their temptations. We've got Ananias, and we've got Sapphira. It wasn't just a love of money. It was a love of glory. It was a love of reputation. It was a love of adoration. They were people pleasers. They devoured their own fame. And they contrived a plan to gain it. And in doing so, they began to live a lie. That lie, friends, is called hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is the pretending to be on the outside what you are not on the inside. It is the hiding of who you really are in order to present a different you. Hypocrisy is not living worse than you know you ought. That's sin. We all are sinners. Hypocrisy is not being honest about it and putting up a persona that you've got it all together when, in fact, you're hiding from God and everybody else. See, there's a warning that Jesus gave, and if you're not super attentive, you're not going to catch it. He says this in Luke 12, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. You know why he called hypocrisy leaven? Because just like leaven puffs up the loaf, hypocrisy elevates our pride. And before we know it, we're not even no longer just not bothered by our sin. We don't even see it because we're self-deceived. We can no longer separate fact from fiction and reality from lies. That's the end game of hypocrisy. That's the goal of the devil. Hypocrisy mutes terribly the power of a Christian's witness, and it's going to do the same for a church. People might say, you go to Cornerstone Church? I know someone who goes there, and you wouldn't believe how that person lives. I'm never going to go to that church. See, the message of a hypocrite will never be trusted. It is not believed, and it is discarded as irrelevant. It's the number one charge the world makes against the church. And friends, it will destroy our testimony. So the solution is clear. 
And we're going to see it tragically unfold in the rest of the story. Here's the solution. It's holiness. The problem is hypocrisy. The solution is holiness. Look at verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Heard of it, the young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, if you're being honest, I would wager that many of you feel this is an extreme reaction from God. And if you're truly, utterly being honest, maybe an overreaction. And if you are secretly thinking that, wow, God, that seems a bit too far, then it betrays your lack of horror at a sin against God. You've trivialized sin. For Peter said to Ananias in verse 4, you've not lied to man, but to God. Friends, if you don't remember much else from this message, can you remember this? Every single sin that we will ever commit is fully and finally against God. Every sin. There are no exceptions. You're not sinning against your spouse. You're not sinning against your children only. You're not sinning against your parents and your rebellion only. You're not sinning against your government or your partner or your neighbor or your classmate. You are fully and finally in every sin sinning against God. And even when your sins are personal and private, you are sinning against your creator to whom you belong. Sapphira comes in three hours later. She did not know that her husband had already been buried in that hot climate. They always, immediately as they could, always same day, buried the dead. She comes in and she repeats the same lie. She dies immediately, but before she did, Peter said in verse, verse 9, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? See, they just weren't lying to God. They were testing God. In other words, they were so self-deceived because of the leaven of their hypocrisy that they thought, you know what? Nothing's bad has ever happened to us. Maybe this isn't a big deal to God after all. I mean, we really are giving some of the money to the church to help the needy. Why did God take their lives? I mean, you've got to be wondering. In fact, let me dare say, you've been a hypocrite. I've been a hypocrite. And we're here breathing. Why did he take their lives? Well, if you're a student of the Word of God and you go all the way back even to the Old Testament, you will find whenever God begins a new work in his people, sin is dealt with immediately and fiercely. Just ask Achan, who when they crossed into the promised land, stole some of the treasures of the people of that land that they were told not to touch and buried it in his tent and was killed for it. Whenever God is beginning a new work, he knows his community is fragile. Sin can spread easily. He will not let it spread. And some of you are going, whew, that is so good news, because now I can get away with it. 
No. There is a sin, John says in his epistle, to death. There is time, friends, I think if our eyes could be open, we would be terrified at seeing how many people die before their time who are Christians because they will not stop sinning. They have sinned themselves to death. There's a way to get so much to a hardened heart that you're no longer sensitive to your sin, and God will sometimes take your life. That is frightful. And it demands we treat sin seriously. Immediately, verse 10, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. The church had just begun. He's not going to allow sin to be trivialized nor hypocrisy to spread. Now look at the response in the church and in the community, verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these Things. What's it mean, great fear? Is that terrifying quaking and trembling before God? No. Is it terrifying fear that if you get out of line, he's going to strike you dead? No. It is respect. It is awe. It is astonishment of God that is seeing how he deserves to be held in the highest regard. That's what it means to have the fear of the Lord. He is so great that your heart beats to love him. And whenever we minimize our sin, we prove that we lack the fear of God, but a repentant people will evidence a sober and serious view of sin. This is what Paul means in Romans 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You might be thinking, well, I've got sin in my life that I, I know is there and I keep repeating it and I'm not yet letting it go. Listen, the reason God is keeping you alive is because he's kind to you. He is merciful to you. He's giving you time to repent, but his time will eventually expire if you will not repent. This is a very sober message. So how can we not live the life of Ananias and Sapphira? Let me give you three ways that I'm going to encourage you to put into action immediately. One is confess. Do you know what confession means? Biblically, theologically, it means two things. Please write it down. It means to agree with God. He's unzipped your heart. He's shown you what's in there. You can see it now. Agree with God. Don't trivialize it. Don't blame shift. God, it's the woman that you gave to me. He blamed Eve and God, Adam did in Genesis 3. Don't do that. Don't justify. Don't rationalize. See it and agree with it. And the second thing confession means is to cast it to the mercies of God. So it means to agree and to throw. You got to get it out. If you see the sin and you zip it back up and you don't get it out, you'll return to the sin. It's humility. It's seeing yourself the way God sees you and responding the way God wants you to. The elder statesman of England in the 17th century, you've heard of him, Oliver Cromwell, he had a portrait painted. Cromwell had warts all over his face, and the painter chose not to paint the warts. 
And when he unveiled it to Cromwell, Cromwell looked at the painting and said, I'm going to quote him, take it away and paint me warts and all. That's a confessor. Don't try to clean up your act before God. Just see what he shows you and respond in humility. This is why Paul said in Acts 24, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Take pains to clear your conscience. And there are times when our outside doesn't match our inside. The way we look to others doesn't match the reality. And the humble person comes clean before God and confesses that which was held in secret. So be humble. Be honest. And confess before God disciplines you. Secondly, repent. Repent. Do you know what the very first of the 95 theses was that Martin Luther nailed to the church door in Wittenberg? It goes like this. Our, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of a believer to be one of repentance. Do you live a life of repentance? Luther means by this that repentance must be a regular rhythm of a Christian's life. Sin draws you away from the God who loves you. Repentance is seeing the horror of it, confessing it, turning around, and going back to him. Here's what repentance is. And let me warn you, every single religion talks about repenting. So what's the gospel say about it? What's the good news of God say about it? Here's what it says. Repentance is the terrible realization not that you broke a rule of God, but a realization that you broke the heart of God. You see the difference? It's not that you broke a command, but you broke his heart. And your heart weeps. It's full of sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7. And it drives you to turn around because you were getting lost because the, the carrot of temptation wandered you away from the way of life. So you turn around having confessed it because you broke the heart of God. And you come back to the one who loves you. So there's two questions that I think you want to start asking every day of your life. And listen, write them out. Put them in your phone. Keep them in front of you and ask them every time you get a break at work or at, or at home. What does God see in my life that is displeasing to him? That's your first question. I dare you to begin asking this. But don't ask that unless you're going to ask the second one. How is God persuading my heart of his love and his mercy for me? If you live in question one, you will become miserable and fall into despair. And if you live in question two without first asking question one, you will trivialize sin and magnify the love of God. You've got to hold both in tension. Because God will never show you your sin without persuading you of his love. Do you understand that and do you believe that? God will never show you your sin without persuading you of his love. And when he does, it must result in one final action. Confess, repent, and finally worship. 
Listen, holiness is when your outside matches your inside. Are you hearing that? I'm going to say it again. Holiness is when your outside matches your inside. The way that you act is the way that you are. And holiness is when you set God as greater and farther above than anything else in creation. And when your life is pursuing holiness, you will have the fear of the Lord. And Proverbs says that will give you a hatred of evil. And there is no evil that you will ever hate more than your own. There is no evil that you will ever hate more than your own. And listen, Christian brother, if you are, and sister, if you're hating other people's evil more than your own, that's not the fear of the Lord. And you're not confessing, and you're not repenting, and you're not worshiping. What keeps the idols from reforming in our hearts that we confess out is the fear of God. It is worship. And unless we return to the Christ who loves us more than anyone else, then we're just making a circle back to our sin. See, worship is the act of a sinner who comes back to the one who lovingly welcomes you home. And it's coming from a heart that is restored to sanity, that's alive with the presence and the power of God. A heart that regards God as greater and more wonderful than anyone, anything on this earth. And the result is the power to be a witness of God all the way to the end of the earth. Can you imagine, Christian, if Cornerstone Church was filled with believers that learned to live out our repentance, confessing, repenting, and worshiping, that see the problems in our heart, God unzips it, we agree with it, we confess it, and we realize, wait a minute, we didn't just break a rule of God, we just broke the heart of God, and it reduces us to tears, and it brings us back to worship the one that invites us to come home. Our witness will be believed. And people all around of us will see Jesus. That's the power of a holy life. And I would invite you to begin living that way even right now. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray, Lord, as Pastor Matthew comes up here and facilitates a time of coming clean with you, God, I pray that we dare not trivialize this. We cannot hold these things in. We are being unzipped by you, and we agree, and we confess, and we repent because we broke your heart. But you're inviting us home, and we worship the God who wants our insides to match our outside. And to that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.